Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2. We have recently begun the series in Judges. Judges, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is the text. Before we hear God's precious and authoritative word read, let us go to him again asking for his help. Our God, whose word is truth, whose word is light, we pray that by this Spirit-inspired word, you would enlighten our minds, you would enlighten our eyes, that we would see clearly who you are and praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, hear now the word of God. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Parents and grandparents alike have many concerns, many fears for their children, their grandchildren. Rising to the top of the glass full of fears is whether the fear of the Lord will rule the heart of their child or the grandchild. It is why many godly moms want only one thing for their children on Mother's Day, to go to church with them, if possible, but even if not, go to church, worship the Lord. It is why many godly grandfathers' final words urge their children and grandchildren to keep their eyes on Christ in their living as they keep their eyes on the Savior in their dying as you older saints get a little older, do you wonder what will become of your child, your grandchild? As you parents run out of time with that child in your home, do you inquire of the Lord about your child's walk or lack thereof? You plead with the Redeemer of your heart. As the story of Judges spills from one introduction into the next, the question of generational faithfulness is in the air, hangs in the balance. And if anyone is worried, he might have reason to fear. 
Moses knew how wayward the people of Israel had been during his own years of leadership. Such a rebellious, stiff-necked, ever-grumbling people, hanging, it seemed, by a thread. And when Moses passes the baton to Joshua, the baton, we see, seems, anyways, to begin to slip from his fingers. He knew them to be living on thin ice, often testing the Lord, who always proved himself worthy. Leadership in Joshua's day was no picnic either. And when Joshua put before the people a covenant renewal, he says, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Who's it going to be? And when he put before them that choice, they amend the covenant. And he said, you are not able to serve the Lord. And they assured him that they were. And so he called them witnesses against themselves. If they would then demonstrate their ability, they would have to destroy their idols. And as the reader, at the end of Joshua, we, we wonder, how long will their godly iconoclasm last after Joshua is gone? And we pray, hopefully forever, realistically, for like 12 seconds. And the question remains for us, how long will idol crushing last? How long will loving the Lord last in our own household, in our hearts, for our children and our grandchildren? And in one sense, the answer depends, doesn't it? As one man says, grace is not hereditary. It is true that we enter into the covenant of grace, but you're not guaranteed rebirth just because you are born in that covenant of grace. Holding together one godly generation after another is the Lord of the covenant. In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, the Pevensey children hadn't been long in Narnia before they found themselves in the cave of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They are sad and confused, the Pevenseys, not the, not the Beavers, because Mr. Tumnus has been arrested through the subtly vigilant secret police of the White Witch. The real king of Narnia had already figured out the army for these two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve that they might lead in battle against the regnant evil. And viewing all of these facts through the prophecy, Mr. Beaver assures the Pevensey youths that Aslan is on the move. The true king of Narnia is here, and he is shaking things up for good. And so they have every reason to be uh, confident and joyful in the battle that awaits them. What we have here in Judges is the pre-incarnate Aslan, if you will, the angel of the Lord on the move, and he has come to shake things up in the national spirit of Israel. The angel of the Lord is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is called angel here because of his heraldic function. He functions as a, as a herald, as a messenger. It is he whom Hagar, back in Genesis 16, calls the God of seeing when she was cast out by Sarah. It is he, the angel of the Lord, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. Jesus himself says this in John 8. Before Abraham was, 
I am. The Son of God is the I am. It is He, the angel of the Lord, Son of God, who led the camp of Israel as a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. It is He who pledged His presence to Israel to lead her by the way. He who would later tabernacle among men in permanent, glorious flesh has promised to be with His people of the covenant, always to guide them, always to sanctify them. And the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, has gone here from, from Gilgal to Bochim. Gilgal near Jericho was the first place that Israel encamped after crossing the Jordan. And it was where God first pitched his tent with the tabernacle. This word Gilgal means rolling, rolling, which is a clear reference to the rolling off of the foreskins and circumcision. This was where the Hebrew boys were circumcised in the wilderness. This is where the Passover was celebrated where the manna stopped coming. It didn't stop coming out of discipline from the Lord. It stopped coming because God had made good on his promise to bring them into the land. It was here where the Lord, as commander of the army, appeared to Joshua. Unsurprisingly, then, this becomes Israel's base of operations for his conquest of Canaan. Gilgal, very significantly, then, was the place for both worship and warfare. We've seen already through just the last couple messages and judges that this is a book of war. The battle rages on, the battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. We worship in the world, and we wage war against the world. From Gilgal, the angel of the Lord moves over to Bochim, and with the meaning of the name, which we'll see later, we see the purpose of this divine movement. But here we see in, in verse 1 that he, the, the angel of the Lord recalls his redemptive rescue. He wants them to see first things. Verse 1, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. This is the activity of God. Only God can deliver a people from enslavement and bring them into the promised land. And so he reminds Israel, like he reminds us regularly, of his covenantal salvation. He did as he has promised. I brought you out of Egypt just as I promised, just as I swore to you, dear fathers. Let every man be a liar, but God remain faithful, for he never breaks a promise. Oh, but we too often break our promises, don't we? But never the Lord. As he promised them then, he now assures us of this redemptive rescue. The women are going to be studying Ephesians this, this week and for several weeks. And one of the blessings, uh, the structures of that book is that Paul, for three chapters, takes great pains to tell them of what God has done for them. Oh, yes, there are commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6. There are ways that, that the church in Ephesus has to, has to live as they relate well, husbands and wives and, and masters and slaves, and how they are to put on the whole armor of God for all of life. But foundationally, it's the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
has called you to be his. The God from before the foundation of the world. Before you were a twinkle in the eye of your parents. Before there was even an Adam and Eve. God determined, out of pure love, to predestine you. To call you. To make you his child. Knowing full well that you would be wayward. Knowing full well that you would not, from the beginning, be a child of blessing, but one of wrath. An enemy. Hostile to him in, in all of his steadfast ways, advances. And so that first thing had to be established. that You belong to the Lord. And it isn't just you, O oh, oh, oh Jew, he says, but Gentile as well. Because Christ is our peace. That is the foundation. Our life. Our spiritual security, our faithfulness, our spiritual health have God's unfailing word as the foundation. You cannot build a home of fruitfulness without Bethel's builder. You cannot worship in the house of the Lord until by grace he has pitched his tent into your once cursed, now blessed heart that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual redemption comes before spiritual reformation. Oh, we pray for that reformation. We pray for that increased holiness that we are all to strive after, without which no one will see the Lord. But foundationally, we need that new heart. We need that righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to our accounts. And so the Lord reminds Israel of what he has done for them. He reminds us through his word what he has done for us. I've called you out of darkness. I've rescued you out of slavery. Your own slavery. To your own sin. To the ways of your former father, the devil. I've rescued you. And I've put you into a new kingdom. I've transferred you into a kingdom of light. A kingdom of the sun. The divine angel of the Lord, after laying that foundation of the redemptive rescue, demands full obedience. He says in verse 2, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. As we've come to expect, not only of ancient Israel, but also of the church, that is the Israel of God, of us ourselves, divine gifts are not always well received. Israel spurned the gift, and so they spurned God. They did this by covenanting with pagans. They didn't desire converts, but they were content with these associations, so long as the pagan nations, you know, didn't act up too badly. And hey, what if they had some good to offer us after all? Surely God wouldn't deprive us of what the world has. We have that attitude towards life, do we not? God tells us to avoid all the appearance of evil. God tells us to seek our own holiness in, in body and spirit. And at the same time, we, we, we hear the word, then we say, well, what's a, little, what's a little worldliness? It feels so good anyways. Why can't we just adopt 
the, the business practices of the world. After all, they're, they're pragmatic. They get things done. Why can't we just adopt some of the secular psychologies? After all, they seem to help certain people, don't they? Can we just adopt the ways of the world as far as education is concerned? Well, if you watch the news, you know that that's not the way to go. If you know your own heart, you know that's not the way to go. And Israel was content to adopt some of those worldly influences. And so they didn't conquer all of the nations, but some. Israel failed to eliminate what God had commanded. And so what we have here is, is divine marvel. He says, what is this you have done? Can you imagine the Lord saying to you, what? What have you done? And you know he'd be just to say that every single time, every single time when we wake up. He says to you, what have you done? What thought did you just have? What word did you just utter? What action did you just commit? What? As he came to Adam and Eve in divine judgment in the courtroom scene of Genesis 3, now he comes to national Israel in judgment. Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned, it, it's not, hey guys, let's just you know, come together, let's have a nice conversation, want to hear your, you know, how you saw things. No, it's, get over here. It's calling Adam and Eve for judgment, to hear the just judgment of the judge of all the earth who does right. Now we know the story, he doesn't end there. There is great promise and grace, even as they are kicked out of the garden. But it's come here and receive the just judgment because my voice was clear. I told you not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you ate. No excuses. Can't blame your wife. Can't blame the devil. Sure, the devil instigated, but you, by willful disobedience, chose to eat. What is this? You have done. The children know this as well as their parents, out of surprise, because of the clear command, what are, you, what are you doing? I told you exactly what to do. I even wrote it on the whiteboard for you so you could look at it. And still, you disobeyed. Does not our Father in heaven, who loves us with an everlasting love, who has all authority, have the right to demand our joyful and immediate obedience? It is rather shocking then to read here in human language of this divine surprise. Not that he didn't know how Israel would act, of course he did. But it is to show how far, how tragically they have fallen, and so soon. We serve a God who demands our all. We serve a God who is an all-consuming fire. We worship God who is not one to mess around with, not one to be irreverent towards, to play around with. Yes, He is our Father in heaven, but He is a just Father. 
And we must disabuse ourselves of this idea that, well, now that we're saved, he's not really that displeased with what we've done. If anything, he is more displeased. Consider your own children and the children in the neighborhood. If you're a parent, do you get more upset at that child over there, his action, or of your child's action? Because you've been teaching that child in the way that he should go. You have given him clear instructions. You care about him. He's yours. And you love him so very much. And you don't want him to go wayward. Yes, it's lamentable that that kid over there didn't listen to his mom, didn't mow the lawn, or what have you. But in one sense, I don't care about that kid. I care about you. The Father is displeased with our sin. And here with Israel, he disciplines them with thorns. Verse 3, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so these pagan nations are not driven out. Because of Israel's infidelity, the angel of the Lord will ensure the presence of these pagan nations. And these will be thorns and snares for Israel. To my shame, I think I may have mentioned this years ago, I once mockingly called my brother Thornhead when he and I were in San Diego visiting our aunt, and he tripped and fell into a thorn bush, and he acquired a thorn or two in his temple. And I thought it was funny because it wasn't my head that was slightly impaled. It was his. He, of course, wasn't laughing. Because thorns aren't really any laughing matter. They hurt. And they are part of the curse. If you have a splinter, a thorn in your hand, you always know that it is there. It is continually a bother. And as a form of discipline, the Israelites will always experience, for a time, these pagan nations, this, this pain. The question for them is, will they grow to accept the pain or they seek to drive it out? Will they seek to be obedient? Same question for us. Will we be comfortable with the evil around us? Will we grow to accept it? Will, will we become so desensitized to it that it is just the new normal? Will we allow worldliness to creep into our households, our hearts? Because really, how dangerous is just a little bit of worldliness? Their gods are a snare. Children, a snare is a trap for an animal. It could be for a rabbit or a bird. and it could be just walking along the way and doesn't know what it just stepped into and snare can catch it, up, catch it up, and hunter can come to it and, and take the animal and do what he wants with it. And as the Israelites walk along the thorny wilderness of the world, as they join themselves with its gods, they will become trapped. They will become consumed. The more they give in to the world, 
the more they will be influenced by and suffer because of it. And God here has graciously shown his people that the thing that they love is actually for their harm. Is this not what God does for us? He shows us as we, what we have done is we have subjected our own bodies and our souls to various masters. Sometimes we call them bad habits. Other times we call them besetting sins. You know, those sins that you wake up struggling with, if you do struggle. Are we content? Do we say, well, this is just, this is just how I am. Sure, I, I've had, you know, I've had anger in my heart for, you know, 10 years, or 20 years, 40 years, but that's just, I'm just an angry person. What can I do? Well, you actually can't do anything on your own, but you know the person who can. But are you comfortable with it? Are you comfortable with that, the way things have been? Dale Ralph Davis says, tolerance and suicide are congenial bedfellows. The more you tolerate the evil, the sin, the more it will lead to your death. Those who struggle with pornography know this. I know I often give that as an illustration, but it's a pretty prevalent one, one that regularly needs to be talked about. Someone who, maybe five years into pornography, doesn't think that I want to have my entire life ruined from the beginning. He just wants, or she just wants, a little bit of pleasure a little bit of satisfaction, a little comfort, whatever is motivating him to seek it out. And then eventually gets trapped by it and cannot even think of any possible way that there could be change, that there could be deliverance. If you give a pig a pancake, you're you're not going to end up in a party. You're going to end up in a pile of mud with it. If you give sin an inch, its master will take you a mile down the road to destruction. If you play with a prostitute, do not be alarmed when you contract her disease. If you buddy up with Bezek, he might just cut off your thumbs and toes. Shall we who are yoked to Christ defile the marriage bed by including idols? What does Christ have to do with Belial? What does light have to do with darkness? You, dear saints, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So glorify God in and with your body. As God, he gave us his all. As God, then he demands our all. All of Christ for all of life. Why? Because he gave all of himself for all of ours. Let us never grow comfortable with our sin. Let us never grow comfortable with the evil onslaught of the world. Verses 5, or 4 and 5 say, As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When the angel moves, a sinner mourns. Well, we, what are we to do if we find ourselves in bed with Bezek or lying with a seductress woman of folly? 
Three steps here. Confess. Weep. Sacrifice. When the angel moved in the hearts of the Israelites, these individuals confessed their sin. They confessed their sin. They saw their sin properly. They joined their voices with God's just judgment. No excuses. No attempt at rationalizing. None of those yes, buts. It is you, Lord, you know. You know my heart. You know my actions. I can't get away from it. I have done wrong. That is weeping. True confession of sin brings about true mourning. This word, bochim, means weepers. And so the place was renamed because of their new posture. That they had been pierced to the heart. They had seen the justice of the Lord. They had seen the, the odiousness, the, the, the abominableness of their own sin. And so they weep. How could they not weep? When you see how hateful your own sin is against the holy God, when you see how offensive you are, that the Lord cannot even allow you into his blessed presence without doing something about you, when you see this, do you not weep? How can our eyes stay dry? And they sacrifice. In true biblical fashion, confession and mourning lead naturally to sacrificing. For them, they offered up animals in anticipation of the final Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for us, we trust in that once-for-all blood sacrifice of the incarnate angel of the Lord. Say, that's the remedy. My blood won't do. All of my supposedly good conduct is not going to bring me into a state of grace. I need the Lord. I depend upon Christ. When we come face to face with the fact that God gave us his all and now calls for our all, what can we do? but confess, weep, and sacrifice. Our life is to be one of daily repentance. Oftentimes we think of repentance as just being uh, for, for an instance of sin. I said that word I shouldn't have said. Committed that action I shouldn't have done. Please forgive me and turn away from that. And, and there is that aspect, of course. When we commit particular sins, we must repent of them particularly as our confession says. But as Martin Luther taught us in the 95 Theses, the whole Christian life is to be one of repentance. Every single day we wake up repenting. We wake up confessing our sins, asking God to forgive how we have sinned the previous day and asking God for the grace to be faithful during the day. And we know at the end of the day that we never do God's will perfectly and so we repent again. All of life for the Christian recognizes that we will never measure up 
But we know who has. We know the Son who came to do his Father's will, who did every single thing, who came to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law, and who says, here's my robe of righteousness, and clothes us with it. He says, I don't want your filthy rags. I've got my own righteous ones, and you can have them. It won't cost you anything, but it costs me everything. Matthew Henry says, it is no wonder sinners can ever read the Bible with dry eyes. Had they kept close to God and their duty, no voice but that of singing had been heard in the congregation, but by their sin and folly made other work for themselves, and nothing is to be heard but the voice of weeping. Our sins alone render weeping needful. If the Puritans, a pious people that knew their own shortcomings, can pray, O God, we repent of our repentance, surely the same is for us. What can be said of us? What about you? Are you you too proud to confess your sin? Are you too proud to lament and to mourn because of your own shortcomings? Are you too proud to give your life as a living sacrifice to the one who gave his son for you? Pray that it not be so. Pray that we would always be humble and contrite in spirit, for that is the spirit that the Lord receives. Well, God does not keep our crocodile tears in a bottle. True confession, genuine weeping, repentant sacrificing ought to wake us up and move us to maintain the faith that is given us and to persevere and to preserve this faith for our children and grandchildren. In verses 6 through 9, we have final words of, of Joshua, and they tell us of the generation the generation's success, for the most part, people had obeyed while Joshua was alive, while the elders were there serving. There was obedience. But you could tell through verse 10 that there was more to the story. That they had failed to heed the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They failed to teach their lambs the shepherd's voice or to show them the comfort of his rod and staff. And so verse 10 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So there's a gap of the Lord God, a gap of knowing his word, a gap of knowing his works, which go hand in hand. They didn't put into practice that adage, children are the future. And we ask ourselves, how do we fare? Are our children in the way of our pursuit of Christ? Or are they one way that we can show our love for Christ? Do we functionally serve Satan's cause? One commentator says, Satan has time, he thinks, and he is willing to wait in the confidence that the next generation will be his. He's happy for even one generation to to be fairly faithful as long as they don't teach their children anything about the things of the Lord. Just give it time. 
give the world the influence it needs to have, and then eventually you'll have generational infidelity. Dear ones, do not give Satan a foothold on your children. What good is fighting to persevere in the faith if we do not train our children in the way that they should go? Do our children and grandchildren know that as godly seed, not only will they inherit the promise of God, but they will also inherit enmity with Satan? Are they equipped to wage war when they come of age? Are we training them to put on the whole armor of God? What good is reformation if it lasts but a generation? If that's as far as it goes. In 1554, with the Reformation well underway and God's truth making inroads into Europe, John Calvin wrote to an unknown Frenchman whose eyes God had enlightened, whose heart God had opened. After thanking the Lord for this infinite goodness, for so great a gift, Calvin urges this man to the spiritual disciplines for himself and for his children. And he has us to consider well the value of that infinite treasure, God's truth, which has been entrusted to you. Consider well that infinite treasure. Jesus Christ himself. Consider him. Meditate upon him day and night. You who are beloved and taught of God, press into your heart the pearl of great price that you have. Calvin says, bear the opprobrium, the shame of the cross. Shake off your sloth and bestir yourself to do battle valiantly against Satan and the world. Oh, beloved, join with Jesus in his sufferings and shame for the sake of his glory. Be not ashamed of the cross, but instead lift high the cross in all that you do. Study deeply the scriptures, as Calvin says, for the coldness we observe in certain persons arises from that carelessness which disposes them to fancy that it is enough to have relished cursorily some passage of the scriptures without seeking its spiritual profit. Do not be content with just reading a verse here or there, just reading a chapter of the Bible and not even thinking about it, not even praying through it. Someone in our covenant group has taken to heart the spiritual discipline of Scripture memory. And not Scripture memory for the sake of memorizing Scripture, though that is a good end in itself, to know God's Word. But as the psalmist says, I hide God's Word in my heart that I might not sin against God. But here, this individual will hear um, thanksgiving and prayer requests, and he seems always to have a timely word. As we're talking or as, we're, we're, as, he, as he's praying, the Lord brings to his memory a passage of Scripture that he had learned, and he applies it. That's not only for his own spiritual profit, but for the profit of others. This is how we are to come to the Word of God. It is life. It is a jewel. It is a a word from our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Finally, Calvin says, think of your children. It is shameful to raise 
them to advance in the world, but not instruct them in the word. As he says, train them up for the possession of a heavenly inheritance rather than that of perishable wealth and honors here below. In other words, prepare them to walk with Jesus every day of their lives. Prepare them to fight in union with Christ. Fight against their own sin. Fight against the world and the attacks of the devil. How do we close this generational gap? By going to where the gap is filled. Filling the gap is the presence of the Lord. So take yourself to him and bring along your children. It is Christ, the heralding Lord of the covenant, as our Redeemer King who holds us together. Where he is, there we shall be also. Let's pray. Our wonderful God, you work wonders in creation. You work wonders in our heart. You work wonders in around us. We pray that you would continue that great work for your glory, for our own transformation. Equip us, we pray, that we might help our own children and grandchildren to come into the way of the Lord, our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen.